Good morning. Thank you for coming back. It's good to see everyone. Um, as I told you, I, I learned long ago as a rabbi in synagogue life that you always begin the lecture with what you wanted to finish with. Um, so let me begin by think, thanking you all for having Nina and I and being part of this wonderful time together. This was lovely. And I think we sat at everybody's table and discovered that we're related to all of you. In s some way or a fashion, I know you, you know my kids, you know my aunt, you know my friend, I sit next to your best friend in shul. You know, I, I married someone you love, I buried someone you love, so we're all one people. And it really has been a joy to be together, to, and thank you so much. I'm sorry for my laryngitis. This was a, a gift from one of my kids when they went back to school. Um, but uh, I hope that you've been able to hear okay. And I, This has been a really lovely time. I, I want to offer you a compliment as an outsider. I mean, I'm really an outsider. I live 40 minutes north of you. Um, you know, Ari, Ari has done something quite spectacular here. Um, he has brought really great Jewish learning to Orange County. Um, as many of you spoke to me during dinner and, and lunch yesterday, I, I grew up in the Valley um, as a kid, and you know, Jewish life ended at LAX. <laughs> you know, there used to be a few Jews in Gardena, and then they all moved up to uh, you know, Cheviot Hills, and that was it. There was nothing Jewish between Los Angeles International Airport and a shul in Chula Vista we used to go to for, uh, for uh, USY. Um, Orange County was not a place Jewish people lived. Um, and it certainly wasn't a place of organized celebration of Jewish life. And you've done a remarkable thing. You have really created a center of Jewish existence with schools and synagogues and the JCC and, and, and such a vibrant, wonderful community. And this particular program, the CSP program, has brought such a quality of learning um, which is really very remarkable. So to Ari and to all of you who contribute, thank you. Because many of you have asked me during the course of these talks, well, you know, what do we say to the kids? What do we say to young people? How do you respond to young people? And, and I have answers, really clever, good answers for that. But <laughs> the truth of the matter is there's a simpler answer. And the simpler answer goes something like this. If kids see adults thriving as Jews, if kids see a Jewish community that is engaging and exciting and intellectually stimulating and deep and moral, if kids see adults having joy in the life of being Jewish, then they will want to grow up and be like that. Otherwise, it doesn't work. A lot of Jewish communities around the world have tried really hard to create Judaism for their kids and never bothered to create Judaism for the grown-ups. And the way that works then is that kids think that Judaism is a lot like driving lessons. Right? You take your lessons, you pass the test, and then you don't have to come back anymore. Right? And that's unfortunate, because if, so if, Jew, if Jewish life becomes juvenile, if it becomes only for the children, and if there's no rich adult life to aspire to, then kids have no reason to grow into the community. But you have done so, lovely, so lovingly in this CSP program is given children something to aspire to become something to aspire to join, a conversation which is at such a high level that no thinking kid would want to miss this. And that's the great gift of a great Jewish community. That's the secret of Jewish existence. The secret of Jewish existence isn't only, I'm not denying it, it isn't only to invest in children. It's in, to invest in a rich and vibrant life for adults. And that life has to be intellectual, and it has to be cultural, and it has to be ethnic, and it has to relate to Israel and it has to be spiritual, and it has to be open to questions, and it has to be open to differences of opinions, and you've done a wonderful job at that.
So as an outsider visiting this community, I want to wish you Mazal Tov. Congratulations. You've done really wonderfully thing, wonderful things. And it's been a joy these you know, last 22 hours to, uh, <laughs> to, uh, to be part of it. So thank you so very, very much. And I hope that you'll take advantage of Clive. Um, some of you had a chance to sort of schmooze with him uh, during the course of the conversation. He's coming in. So please, go find him, you know. <laughs> talk with him. He drinks scotch. Buy him a bottle, you know. And, <laughs> Sit with him, because he really is one of the world's, I mean, he, I'll embarrass him because he just walked in the room, but he really is considered one of the world's leading voices of creative Jewish thinking, of new Jewish thinking, of remarkably interesting Jewish thinking. So there's an opportunity. And as well, I will give you a commercial for the rabbis who are in your community. Last night, Rabbi Spitz was with us. Um, Ellie and I have known each other since uh, for a very, very long time. He's a very, very special human soul. And you have others in this community which are wonderful, so please enjoy them, take advantage of them. No rabbi will ever turn you down if you call him up and say, I have a deep spiritual question, can I take you to lunch? <laughs> Trust me, no rabbi. And if, by the way, if your rabbi does not have time to go to lunch to talk about his deep spiritual question, my phone number is 818. <laughs> 530-4002, it's my direct line. I will take you to lunch to talk about wonderful things. And as well, I want to say one other compliment because I'm, I'm in a complimentary mood. Um, Shalom Elkot and I grew up together. Uh, we went to Camp Ramah together. We were in USY together. Robin was in USY with my brother. It's amazing, she still loves men. It's, uh, uh, you dated Larry, right? Oh, God, Larry's responsible for more lesbians than any. Thank God you came out okay. Oh, no. <laughs> My brother, oi, Nebuch. Shalom, Shalom, you know, first of all, Shalom was always David's little brother. David was the star. And then Shalom began taking uh, leadership positions in the community. And uh, again, from, as an outsider, he's very important. He's very, very deep. He is very creative. He is very important to your community. So protect him and take care of him and cherish his wisdom and enjoy his creativity and support the Federation. It really, it, it is worthy of your support. It is, it is worthy, it is worthy of your support. What? Yeah? All right, so there's a tshuva for that. That's okay. <laughs> so, so thank you to Shalom for all of his support. Okay, I, there's probably a lot more compliments to be passed out, but I wanted to say thank you for being, for allowing us to be part of this, uh, the community for a little while. It's really very, very sweet. Um, today I want to try to wrap all this up and give you a little commentary on Andrew Lustig's uh, poem as we get to the end. We may have time for some text study, we may not. We'll, we'll, at least we'll talk about the important thing. We talked about the, the need in a moment of discontinuity to ask questions that never get asked in the Jewish world. And yesterday in the evening I tried to ask the collective question, What's the meaning and purpose of Jewish existence? And I tried to give you an ideology of that, a sort of sense of how that, I think that plays through the history of the generations of the Jewish people. Today I wanna to talk personal. So in my synagogue, we have a day school, and twice a week I lead the day school kids, second, third, and fourth graders, and fifth graders in prayer. I teach the kids how to pray, and then usually we have a little bit of time left over, so I, I ask them, does anybody have a question they wanna ask a rabbi? I've been doing this for 30 years. I did it before, before I lived in, in L.A. I used to do this in Texas when I was there. And, and I like to call this part, I have a, an exalted name for it, She'elot Uchuvot. You know, questions and answers. The kids like to call it Stump the Rabbi, you know. 
And they'll ask all kinds of questions, sports questions and science questions. And, okay. and then finally, they realize you know, he's a rabbi. Ask him religious questions. And when kids settle in, they ask great questions. Kid raises his hand and says, if God created everything, who created God? That's a marvelous question, right? You say to the kid, listen, everything in the world that you know and I know has a beginning, right? Before you got a tree, you got a seed. Before you got a chicken, you got an egg. Before you have anything in the world, you have its ingredients and somebody put these things together. Is there anything in the world that doesn't have a beginning? That wasn't formed in shape but has always been? Is there any always in existence? And sometimes the kids will think, and a kid will raise their hand and say, time. Time isn't always. Because if you could say there was a time before time, you want to know what time was that. Time isn't always. Immanuel Kant said time is one of the categories of existence, so you can't ask where did time come from. But time isn't always. So I say to the kids, if time isn't always, what if God isn't always? God doesn't have a beginning and God doesn't have an end. God is one of the conditions of existence. God isn't always. Now, in fancy philosophical language, when the kid gets to college, he's going to learn that the question is, what is the ontological status of eternity? Now, but that's language no kid understands. Even I don't understand that language, right? So, but right now the question is, is there anything in the world which is eternal, but yet very real? Because what I want to do in my life is attach myself to something much older than me that's eternal, and therefore gain a certain sense of dignity myself. God, I say, isn't always. And then another kid will raise his hand and say, we're studying Genesis. Good, second grade, we do sheet. If Adam and Eve were the first people, and they only had two kids, and they were both boys. <laughs> How did the world get full of people? To which the fifth graders get sex education in second semester. They all go, ooh. It's a really wonderful question. What's the kid asking? You told me the Torah is true. But I find stuff in the Torah that doesn't make sense. It violates my sense of common sense. Well, which is it, common sense or truth of the Torah? Is it true? So I'll ask the kid, do you think the guys who wrote the Torah were stupid? And he said, no, of course not. Smartest people who ever lived. Well, don't you think that question occurred to them? They knew where babies come from. Ew. And they knew mommy, daddy, and two boys. And by the way, one of them ends up offing the other. So you're down to one, right? That, that couldn't be right. So I say to them, when you find something in the Torah that violates your sense of common sense, you're being asked to read in a different way. Read not literally. Read Symbolically, in other words, don't read for the facts of the story, read for the meaning of the story. This is hard for second graders to get, but fourth graders begin to understand because they can do a certain kind of cognitive processing. If we all came from the same mom and dad, what does that make us all? Family. How, now you have to ask this next question carefully. You say, how are you supposed to treat your family? <laughs> you don't say, how do you treat your family? Because it's a nasty question. You're supposed to treat your family with care, with responsibility and respect. If there's someone in your family, they're yours. You have to take care of them. That means that the whole world is one family. And I'll start to impress them. Even people who look different than us? Well, yeah. Even people who live far away? Uh-huh. Even people who practice religion differently, eat different foods, smell funny? They are part of us too? Uh-huh. And we are responsible for every single one of them. That's what the story says. Is that an important idea? Says the kids, uh-huh. A little girl will ask a question. My mommy was just diagnosed with breast cancer. We're all really scared.
If I pray really hard, will God make her better? That's a terrifying question. Why do bad things happen to nice people, to good mommies? Why do cancers happen to good mommies? You know, and the scary thing you know is that breast cancer in Ashkenazic women is almost universal. It's, un it's unbelievably rampant. So what do you say to a kid? If I say, yeah, pray hard, mommy will get better, and she doesn't, what's going to happen to that kid's sense of the world? I can't promise that. So I tell her a story. I'm a cancer patient. I've had two bouts of colon cancer, one really, really, really serious. I discovered something when I was sick. The world is filled with angels. Now, angels aren't guys with wings and harps and sit on clouds and robes. Angels are ordinary people who do extraordinary acts of kindness and never ask anything in return. My angel was named Charles. Charles was a very large black man, African-American nurse, night nurse at Kaiser Sunset Hospital. Because I woke up, I had a 12-hour surgery to save my life. And when I woke up from my surgery, I was in misery. I, you know, you always wake up from surgery three days later in the middle of the night and my mouth was dry and my body was stiff and I was in a tremendous amount of pain and there was nobody there. And I woke up and started pulling the IVs out of my arm and into my room comes Charles. And he said, what the hell are you doing? And I said, I'm dying. He said, oh, no, you're not. Too much paperwork. <laughs> now you stay right here. And I thought I was dreaming because this very large black man in my room, I thought this man's going to kill me and I'll be done with it once and for all. And he comes back 15 minutes later with washcloths and mouth swabs and, and new bandages and he bathed me and he rebandaged my, ba my, my wound and he gave me these mouth things to suck on and he fixed me up and he propped me up and gave me my glasses and I could see him and he says, now my name's Charles and I'm here all night and you better not die because I can't afford the time. And he came in every half hour. You still here? I said, yeah, but I still want to die. He said, what do you do for a living? I said, I'm a rabbi. He said, oh, my God, you're a man of faith. What kind of man of faith are you? You want to die. Shame on you. He didn't know, fair, you know, but. Uh... And he would leave every morning. I was in a hospital for 12 days. He left every morning at 7 o'clock in the morning, and he said, now, listen, rabbi, I'm coming back tonight, and you damn well better be here, right? Because I just can't afford the time to fill out all those papers if you die on me. Charles brought me from death back to life. And no amount of money in the world that the Kaiser Foundation pays that man could give him, to, to pay him for that, for his confidence that I was going to get better, for his strength, for his ability to love. And I discovered angels all over the place, right? I used to go, I go for CAT scans still once a year because my doctor don't want to be surprised again. I once sitting on this thing, and these wonderful technicians are hooking. You ever take a CAT scan? This is an amazing machine. You don't even take it undressed. You just lie there. They give you this shot of this wonderful drug, right? Fills you with this warm stuff all over. And then you stand in this thing, and this automatic machine says, hold your breath. You know? And so I once said to the technician, can I see that? He says, sure, come in here. And he turns me on. There's my kishkas on television. Unbelievable. Purple, green. I said, he said, he said that, that's where you had the surgery. And that's where, let me show you where the tumor was. Let me show Unbelievable. I wrote a letter to the two guys. Two, CAT scans were invented by two guys at Lucent Technology. It was a mistake. They were trying to create a new military radar. This, it didn't work well enough. This was the mistake. I wrote him a letter, and I said, you are angels. You saved my life twice. You can't possibly know what it means for a surgeon to know what he's getting into when he opens a kid, a person up. So I made up a bracha for that one. There's a bracha, pokeh um, God who opens the eyes of the blind. And whenever I get in the CAT scan machine, I say that bracha. I say, God, you have given us the ability to see in the dark. Baruch atanem pokeh 
the world is filled with angels. So I said to this kid, I hope your mommy gets better. I know the doctors have really good medicine and they work really hard. And I hope that your mom is surrounded by angels who love her and take care of her. And angels who love you and your dad and your sisters and you together. So let's pray to God to send angels. That's a prayer that God's going to keep. Now, after all these, there's always one kid. He wears a different face every time, but he's the same kid. And he always sits in the last row. He's usually a fourth or fifth grader. I mean, 10, 11 years old. He's a wise guy. And he's waving his hand crazy. Rabbi, call on me. Oh, shoot. (laughs) Fine. Okay, what's your question? So he stands up, looks at his buddies, gives me that big grin. And he says, Rabbi, what's the meaning of life? (laughs) And the whole row, the whole row of fourth grade boys cracks up. I've been had. Now, the first dozen times this happened, I wanted to reach out and strangle a little bastard. I swear. I once threatened to revoke his bris. He said, you can do that? you damn right I can. And then one day I stopped and I listened to the question again. What's the meaning of life? He thinks that's the dumbest, stupidest question you can ask. Who taught him that? Who taught him that what's the meaning of life is a dumb question? Even if you ask your rabbi, even if you ask in shul, first question is, what's the meaning of life a dumb question? Not in my existence. Now, I live a weird life. I spend a lot of time with people in crisis. What's the meaning of life is not a dumb question at the mortuary. What's the meaning of life is not a dumb question in the surgical waiting room at the hospital. What's the meaning of life is not a dumb question in the hallways of the family court. What's the meaning of life is not a dumb question in my study when people come. It's the most important question a person can ask. So who taught this child that what's the meaning of life is a dumb question? And now I look at the kid and I can recognize him. See, he's a casualty of two convergent themes. Number one, what's the meaning of life is a dumb question because we Jews don't like to ask that question. We very rarely ask why questions. We love how questions. You ask me, how many candles go in your menorah? I can tell you that. How, how, how do you prepare a kosher meal? That I can tell you, right? But the why questions are almost never asked. Why do we do stuff? Why is it that way? Why do we believe in these things? Why are we? We don't want to ask those questions. Look, I'll give you the best example of all. The greatest midrash on question asking is the four sons in the Haggadah, right? The kid who asks... What are the laws and traditions, the mishpatim and chukim? What are the laws and traditions and rules of the Passover? He's called the chacham, the wise child. The one who says, mazelachem, what's this mean? What's it mean? How does it fit into your personal narrative? How does this change your life? What difference does this story make? Him we castigate as the rasha, the evil child. There's nothing evil about his question. And by the way, if you want to buy the rabbi's explanation, because it says lachem, the lolo, it says much as to you, read the chacham's question. The chacham's question is, ma chukim vamishpatim asher mitzaveh Adonai etchem. He also says you, not himself. It's not that. It's that he asks the why question, and why questions make us itchy. 
Because once you ask a why question, you're in a moment of discontinuity. You've stepped out of the flow of the narrative, and you're looking back and asking, well, why am I Jewish? Well, what does this mean to me? Well, why should I choose into this community? Or as Tevi and Goldie would say, do you love me? Now, what happens here? It's very interesting. He gets castigated. Now I understand the whole Midrash. Because the one I never understood was the fourth one. She'eno yodeya lishol. The child who doesn't know how to ask a question. What Jewish kid doesn't know how to ask a question? <laughs> Have you ever met a Jewish child who couldn't ask a question? Look, in my family, the, the fundamental question was, when do we eat? Right? That was, or what page are we on? There was always that question. Couldn't even ask, what is doesn't. It's not that that kid is inarticulate or dumb or mute. Now I recognize him. He was yesterday's Rasha. He was the kid who came with the why question. Why are we doing this? And what did we say to him? Shut up. Shut up. You don't have a voice at this table. So he bought that and he shut up. And he sits at the end of the table, quiet, resigned. At least he comes. At least he comes to the Seder. He doesn't, he doesn't ignore the Seder. He comes for whatever reason out of family affiliation, but he doesn't say a word. Why? Because he asked the question, what's the meaning of all of this? And we told him to shut up. And now I recognize that kid. You know that in the year 1990, and once again in the year 2000, the federated, uh, all the federations in North America did a major study of the Jews of this continent. It was called the National Jewish Population Survey. You all know this, right? And, right? The National Jewish Population Survey in 1990 found there were 5.5 million Jews in North America. Then in, in, in 2000, they found, found 0.2 million Jews in North America. They asked those 5.5 and 5.2 million Jews, what is your current religion? 20% checked the box labeled none. 20%. Not Christian, not Jewish, not Muslim, not Orthodox, not conservative, not reformed, none. Call them non-Jews, right? The non-Jews. Jews who are not willing to say, I'm Jewish. They're born Jewish. They have some ethnic or genetic affiliation with the Jewish people, so they got counted, but they consider themselves none. Why? Because they were the Rasha. They were the kid that says, what's the meaning of this? And we told them, shut up. So they did. The Dalai Lama once met with a delegation of Jewish leaders. And he said, do something about your people because your people are, are crowding my ashrams. Your people are filling up my study halls. There are more Jewish Buddhists than there are Buddhist Buddhists in North America. Open up, go to the bookstore, by the way. All the great Buddhist books, Sylvia Bornstein and Jack Kornfeld and Sheila Weinberg, and all of the great Buddhist books are, are written by Jews are written by Jew, Jew booze. Because they asked why. And we said, shut up. So now I know who that kid is. And it's not just the Judaism that fails him. America fails him. America is the greatest free society in the history of human civilization. We Americans have more prosperity, more security, more leisure time, more possibilities more choices, more choices than any human beings who ever lived. Right? But if you don't believe me, go to your local supermarket and ask for a tomato. <laughs> what kind of tomato? Do you want a uh, Jubilee tomato or a 
house, hot house tomato or sun-dried tomatoes or Roma tomatoes or vine-ripened tomatoes. I went to the market. Nina said, go get me a tomato. I went to the market. I went to Gelson's. You have Gelson's out here? Oh, my God. Oh, Gewalt. I said to the guy, I need a tomato. He gave me like 28 kind I said, give me an effing tomato. I just don't, you know? Just, that's choices. You have so many choices in America. You can do whatever you want. There's only one thing America can't give you. Any reason to want something. America gives us power and choices, but it doesn't give us a reason to be. And therefore, it doesn't give us a set of priorities for how to make the choices. And if you don't live with a sense of purpose, and Americans live denied a sense of purpose because there's no sense of purpose in this culture, only consumption. There's no sense of purpose, only consumption. What happens is you live with a hole in a soul. And living with a hole in a soul is grossly uncomfortable. So what do we do? We rush to fill it up with drugs with real drugs and with alcohol and with shopping and with sex and with all kinds of drugs. Now, a lot of those are illicit, so there's actually the biggest drug. The biggest drug in America that's used to fill up the hole in the soul where purpose ought to be, where meaning ought to be, is called fun. Spelled in English, F-N, fun, because that's America's God. What will we do for a little fun? Consider for a moment. I grew up in Los Angeles as a kid. We had seven channels on the television. Two, four, five, seven, nine, 11, and 13. We had a black and white TV with no vertical hold. I got this, as, I got this astigmatism the old fashioned way. And then in my 13th year, the Lord God gave us something called UHF. So we had bullfights from Tijuana and Alistair McIntyre from London, right? In a masterpiece theater, you know? Right, remember that? So here's what happens. So here's a, my wife and I, I'll give you a little quick story. My wife and I lived for most of our married life with a 19-inch color television with rabbit ear antennas that I bought from my, one of my graduate students when he went to Israel. It was a great TV. The TV died about five years ago. Oliver Shalom. <laughs> so the kids come to me, teenagers come to me and say, Abba, you buy a new TV every 25 years. You should make a good purchase. <laughs> Says I to the kids, what do you think we should get? Says them to me, we know. Give us the car and the credit card. We'll take care of it. <laughs> okay, I give the kids the card and the TV, and they go off to the world, the, nir the place of nirvana for consumer electronics, Best Buy. <laughs> they come back three hours later, very happy. What did you buy? Oh, you're going to love it, Abba. It's coming in three days. In three days, four of the largest men I've ever seen in my life come to my house with a truck. They unload a box, which I swear is the size of my first apartment. <laughs> and out of this box comes a sunny Trinitron flat screen HD TV, um, 36 inch, uh, this thing is just a thing. You, uh, you, and they give me, the man's a sweet man. He's this Latino man. He says, Senor, here is the remote control. That you could launch a rocket with this thing. It's got more buttons on it. And my son, my beautiful loving son says, Abba, now that you own a fine piece of digital technology, you can't have rabbit ear antennas anymore. It's time to get... So Dimitri comes to my house, Russian Jew, immigrant from the, from the Ukraine, and he hooks me up. Do you know how many channels I have on my TV? Do you know how many channels I got on my TV? Time Warner Cable? Do you know how many channels? I, I'll tell you how many. 
It's not even a number, it's a function. <laughs> there are enough channels on my TV that you don't actually have to watch anything. You can spend the whole night just slipping through the channels. So Nina comes home, she dances Monday night. She comes home, she says, what are you watching? I'm watching everything. I got Ron Paul and, 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 and Brett Favre. I got some lady cooking in the nude over here. I got Gilligan's Island in Portuguese over here. I got Gevald, I got the world on the striker. Ooh, look at this. Amazing, you can spend the whole night flipping through channels, 547 channels of television, and that's just on regular television. Then there's a thing called pay-per-view, which is really addictive, because you push a button and bam, movies are on your TV. And then if you turn, of course, that we also, by the way, have an Xbox, because we're a family with kids, and then you turn 90 degrees, we keep the computer in the living room, and there we have a computer. How many websites are there? Somebody open Google and tell me. Every day Google tells you how many pages they catalog. And the last time I looked, it was something like 11.2 billion pages. How long would that take you to go through? <laughs> right. And then if that's not enough, a block away from my house, they built a mall. In the mall, they put a movie theater. Remember movie theaters? Movie theaters used to show a film, right? And then on Thursdays, they would switch. A new film. If you were lucky, you got a double feature, right? How many movies play now? 27 movies in a cineplex. Cost me $15 a ticket to get in, but hell, it's amazing, right? And that's just the cineplex, plus the mall with the 106 shops, right? Then comes other ways to kill some time, right? Theme parks. How many theme parks are there? I was born the same year Disneyland was. Me and Mickey the same age. Hi, you know. <laughs> How many, how many Disneylands are there now? You know what they did? You know, because you live in Anaheim. They built a theme park in the Disneyland parking lot. It's called California Adventure. We had some relatives visiting from the East Coast, so I drove down there, right? And I get to the ticket booth. It took me two and a half hours to drive down. The ticket booth, and this sweet girl from Orange County said, would you like to see California Adventure? And I said, honey, I just spent two and a half hours on the 405. <laughs> I've had all the California adventure I can stomach. <laughs> you get me to Fantasyland now. <laughs> you know, I mean, I mean, what do you need it all for? Henry David Thoreau, the great philosopher, said men live lives of quiet desperation. He's wrong. Today, men live lives of amused distraction. The principal product of Western civilization as expressed in our culture is distraction, diversion entertainment, fantasy. Why? Because we have all of this time and all of this power and all of this spending money and not the foggiest idea what to do with it. Not the foggiest idea what to put it into. I'll give you another silly story. It's a true story. I, I'm the rabbi in a large synagogue, very visible synagogue, and I feel responsibility for the community. I get a call from a guy. He says, my dad died. Would you do the funeral service? I said, no, oh, you're not a member of the show, but you're in the neighborhood. I feel responsible, sure. I want to meet you and your brothers. So I drove up to this beautiful house in the Encino Hills, and I meet these three men, and their father was, seemed to be a very nice man. They're nice boys, nice men, nice young men. And we sit down in the house, and I, the, when I prepare a funeral service, I just ask people a very simple question. Tell me about your pop. Tell me about your dad. What do you want to know? Well, what was important to him? What was he into? How did he spend his days? What did he do for a living? What was, what was important in his life? Well, after mom and the kids, and uh, golf. Golf, I say, golf is fine. Golf is fun. What were his causes? What were his values? 
Now they all agree together. Golf. Dad was really committed to golf. Golf was everything dad wanted. And by the way, now I look around the house. You can tell people by the house they live in. And I realize that this house is decorated in early Tiger Woods. You know? I mean, the whole house is sort of this foresty green, you know? And there's golf trophies and golf books and golf pictures on the walls. Golf everywhere. So I try one more time. Did your father have a vision of the world where he'd like to take the world, something he was deeply committed to? And they all agreed, yeah, dad wanted to retire, live on a golf course. That's what he wanted to do. He spent his life doing golf. Now, let me tell you a little secret, inside secret. It's not hard to do a Jewish golf funeral because 18 is high. <laughs> he played his 18 and now he has the hole in one he always wanted. <laughs> Please rise, you know. It's not hard to do a Jewish golf funeral. You talk about straight shots. You talk about, I mean, you, it's just, it's not hard to do it. Drivers and woods and all that. It's not hard to do it. And as I'm doing it, I'm asking myself this question. Is it possible that we have reached that stage in the development of the human species when an entire life can be devoted to entertainment, diversion, and games? Is that really what we've become? That a man needs no purpose in life anymore. He can spend his life playing a game and that's it. And then the, the scarier thought came to me, which is this one. What if he did have some poetry in his soul? What if he did have a sense of purpose? What if there were causes he was deeply committed to, but he never communicated them to his children? So here's your homework from me. Every group I speak to gets homework. You're going to get homework. You ready for your homework? Yes. When you go home, today or sometime very soon, I want you to sit down in a quiet place in a quiet moment and write a letter. I want you to write a letter to the people you love the most in the world. If you're blessed with kids and grandkids, write to them. If you have a circle of friends that are dear to you, write to them. Write a letter and put in that letter, what has life taught you? What have you learned? What is the meaning and teaching and truth of your life? What did you learn from growing up? What did you learn from going to school? What did you learn from working in the world? What did you learn from your successes? And most of all, what did you learn from your failures? Those of you who've been married, what did you learn from marriage? Those of you who are blessed with children, what have you learned from raising children? Those with grandchildren, with grandchildren. Those who are divorced, what did you learn from that? Those who have to bury loved ones, what have you learned from death? What has life taught you? It's hard to do. You're not used to speaking this language. It's a foreign language, but I want you to sit down and write the letter. And I want you to write this letter for three reasons. Number one, you deserve to know. You deserve to know. There are 4,850 verses in the Torah. There's about 233,000 letters in a Sefer Torah. You know the tradition that if any letter is missing from a Sefer Torah, you can't use the Torah, the Torah's puzzle? Now, that's a really good example of Jewish obsessive compulsive disease. You know? <laughs> One yud is erased in the whole Torah's puzzle. So the Hasidim came up with a beautiful meaning of this. What did they say? They said, every letter stands for one of us. Every one of us has been sent into the world with one word of God's message. If we fail to articulate our word, the entire message is indecipherable. You have something to say to the world. No one, maybe no one's ever asked you to say it. So sit down and write it out so you'll know what it is. You have a truth. Make sure you know what it is.
Make sure you know what it is. That's the first reason to do it. Here's the second reason to do it for me, because I'm your rabbi, or Ellie's your rabbi. And when the time comes, you should all live to be 120. But when the time comes, don't want your kids to know what you were thinking. So by the way, put the letter somewhere you can find it, like near your sock, under your sock drawer is a good place. Don't you want them to know what was deepest in your heart? What really mattered to you? I gotta tell you, I've been doing this for 30 years. I've read these letters at funerals. You know how comforting it is to hear your mama's voice, to hear your papa's voice say, this is what matters to me most. It is such a gift to those who survive you. Otherwise, it's gonna end up being golf at your funeral too. Third reason to do this. If you do it, I guarantee you, you will suddenly read holy texts differently. <laughs> because I'm gonna to submit to you a crazy idea. The Torah, the Mishnah, the Gemara, the Talmud, the Haggadah, the Megillah, the Siddur, the Shulchan Aruch, every holy book we got is the collection of letters from our ancestors. This is what they wrote us. They desperately wanted us to know about life, what they learned from life, from their successes and failures, from their disappointments and triumphs, from their wrestling with the angel of death and celebrating the birth of life. They wanted us to know, so they wrote it to us in letters and preserved them. That's what makes it holy. Kid will ask me sometime, did God write the Torah? Answer, of course he did. Only God doesn't own a pencil. God doesn't own a word processor. So what did God use to write the Torah? It's the sensitive souls of human beings. We are God's pencils. Your truth is part of the grander truth of the Jewish experience. Write it down so we'll have it somewhere. And then when you open the Torah, and you open the Mishnah, and you open the Siddur, and you open the Haggadah, and you open the Megillah, you will understand what it is you're reading. Because you'll feel the pain and the pathos of those people that wanted to communicate with you in the same way that you want to communicate with your loved ones. That's why you write the letter. American civilization gives us enormous power to make choices, but not the foggiest idea what to do with it. And American civilization is bereft. And that's why we walk around with a hole in our soul. That's why entertainment is the chief preoccupation, diversion, distraction, and consumption. One of the things I've talked about in my community a lot is the danger of the mall. The mall. The mall's a great place. Ask your teenagers where they hang out. They all go to the mall. The problem with the mall is the mall has a culture. It says to the kid, your worth has to do with your looks. You are what you wear. You have nice clothes, nice accessories, nice tchotchkes. You're an important person. Otherwise, you're, no, you're nobody special. The god of the mall is named Abercrombie and Fitch. Someday archaeologists in 100 million years will dig up the mall. They'll dig up North, North Newport Fashion Square, right? And they'll say, this must have been a temple to this culture. Because <laughs> look where it's located. Look how elegant it is. And here at the center is the god they worshipped, Abercrombie. There was a god of fertility named Victoria, but that was another. She was secret. <laughs> Abercrombie and Fitch, right? Because that's how you get to be beautiful. That's how you get to be cool. That's how you get to be worthy. You worship at the God of Abercrombie. I'm not kidding. Idolatry isn't worshiping a rock or a stone. Idolatry is a simple answer to a complicated question. 
a false answer to a real spiritual question. The real spiritual question is, what should I be doing with the time of my life? And the answer that Abercrombie gives is, buy nice clothes. It is the false answer to a real spiritual question. And therefore, it is an idol. It fun Isn't it funny, by the way, that the most popular television program is called American Idol? You think Abraham smashed the last idols in the world? And think about what American Idol is. It's this fantasy that if I'm famous, I'm somebody. Any schlepper can be famous in America. All you have to do is impress Simon Cowell, you know, who's the angel of death, right? Because <laughs> if Simon Cowell likes you, you'll live forever, right? You'll be an idol. You'll be somebody special. You don't need to be on American Idol to be somebody special. I say to kids all the time, fame doesn't make you special. Being special makes you special. So the kid looks at me and he says, oh, what's the meaning of life, Rabbi? What do you tell him? Here's what I tell him. One day after the kid asked the question, he's cracking up at me. I said, all right, I'll answer your question. Stand up. He got really worried. I said, no, you're not in trouble. Your bris is safe. <laughs> So I'll give you an answer. I'll give you a really short answer. Short answer. We don't have a lot of time. I'll give you a short answer. You ready? There's a story told by a great rabbi named Isaac Luria. Isaac Luria was a young man who lived in the northern city of Tzfat in Israel. And he lived a generation after the destruction of Spanish Jewry. For 700 years, we lived in Spain, the most beautiful Jewish civilization there ever was. And then Ferdinand married Isabel. And as a wedding gift, they threw the Jews out of the country and stole all their property. The refugees ended up all over the place. But a large community of the refugees, particularly the mystics, ended up in Sfat, which is this beautiful town in the north of Israel where the air is clear. And they had this question, how can God do this to us? Why are we so out of place? Why have we no home in the world? Came along this young rabbi and he had an answer. He said, it's not that you're out of place. The world is out of place. God is out of place. When God created the world, said Luria, God began with a set of structures. And those structures were intended to be filled with energy and light, and that would be the world. It's like a lamp and a, and a spark inside of it that gives it light. But when God was ready to light that spark, when God was ready to fill those vessels with life and with energy and with love, God loved the world too much. And God goofed. God put too much energy into the world. The vessels he created couldn't hold the energy, and the vessels exploded. We live in that world, a world of shattered shards, of broken pieces. Each shard carries an, a, a spark of the divine light that God put there, but they're broken, and they're all over the damn place. So God created us to be his hands and his eyes and to put the pieces back together. That's our job in the world. Your job as a human being, your job as a Jew, is to find a place in the world where there's brokenness and make it whole, where there's ugliness and make it beautiful, where there's ignorance and give it wisdom, where there's darkness and bring light. There is a place in the world which you and only you can fix. There's a place where only you can fix. You have to find that place and throw everything you know against that place. And understand, this is a very interesting idea, this idea of tikkun. Tikkun olam. Luria invented that idea. Tikkun olam means that the world is broken, but if something's broken, we, and we know that latent in the brokenness is the possibility of its repair. It can be made whole. 
This is very different, by the way, than let's just say a Buddhist philosophy. The Buddhist philosophy begins with the four basic truths. The first of the basic truths is all life is suffering. And it's downhill from there, right? <laughs> what the Buddhist says is that the brokenness of the world can never be repaired. That the world's pieces are incongruent. They can never be fit together. And what a Buddhist then learns how to do is to detach from that world so it doesn't destroy him. We Jews have a different philosophy. We believe in the ultimate repairability. We believe in the fixing of the world. You can do it. It's hard, but you can do it. That's what God put you in the world to do. You are God's partner to make the world whole. Kid raises his hand. Yeah, thank you, he said. Now I know the meaning of life. I have two questions. Number one, how am I going to find the part of the world that I have to fix? Ah, good question, Kittle. Here's my answer. It'll find you. It always does. Believe me. There is a part of the world that only you, with your aptitudes and your attitudes and your abilities, it will find you. I have two very close friends in the world. One of my friends, someone was reading Holy Thief. Who's reading Holy Thief? There you go. One of my friends is Mark Borowitz. Mark Borowitz, a Jewish kid, grew up in Cleveland. He was president of his USY chapter. Good Jewish kid at a bar mitzvah. One of three brothers. His father died when he was 14 years old. And he never got over it. And he got involved in crime. He got involved. He was a numbers runner for the Cleveland mob. Then he became a fence for the Cleveland mob. Then he became a messenger for the Cleveland godfather. Then he cheated somebody out of some money. And the godfather put his arm around him and said, Boychik, get out of town. I can't protect you anymore. So Mark moved from Cleveland to L.A. In L.A., he passed bad checks. He was a cr criminal. He, he, he sold flim-flam used cars. He was involved. In, he went to jail three times. The last time he went to jail, he sat in the jail, and he said to himself, this can't be what I'm living for. This can't be the purpose of my existence. So he had a brother, asked me as a rabbi, brother of a rabbi in New Jersey, he said, send me a chumash and a sitter. And the brother sent him a chumash and a sitter, and he sat on, a, on the floor. They offered him, they offered him well, not parole, they offered to release him on bail. He refused. He said, I want to stay here and think for a while. And he spent three weeks in the, in, in the L.A. County Jail reading the Torah. And he said, there has to be more. And he decided that if he ever got out, this would be what he would do. In 1990, he got out. He was remanded to the, uh, to the custody of a woman named Harriet Rosetto, who's a Jewish social worker who started a center called Beit Tshuva. It was a little house on Palm Street. It was a crummy little house. Mark became the spiritual counselor. Harriet was the social worker. They worked together. He decided that he would save Jews, literally, from crime, from drugs, from alcohol. They ended up getting married to each other. They ended up getting married to each other. And he spent, and I met him in 1990. I was the director of Camp Ramah. Somebody said to me, there's this crazy man in LA who speaks to kids like nobody else can speak to kids about drugs. So I brought him up. This crazy man comes up to Camp Ramah. So I put 160 16-year-olds in the Beit Knesset on the floor. 160 teenagers sitting there. And this guy kept them captivated for three hours. He told them his story. He said, don't you think you're any different than me? I was the president of USY. I can sing all the songs. I know how to daven. I have my talis and tefillin, right? I'm an alcoholic. I'm a drug addict. I'm a criminal. I'm only here because somebody saved me, because God wants something else from me. And he now spends all his time saving lives, right? 1980, 1994, I made him a rabbi. I got him into rabbinical school. I got him through rabbinical school. Took a lot of ass kicking, right? And I ordained him. 
He's now a rabbi. He spends all of his time saving Jewish lives. He found the brokenness in the world that only he can fix. That's what you do. I have another friend named Johnny. Johnny, when I went to Hebrew school together, he's the smartest kid I ever knew, right? Unbelievable kid. Graduated high school at 16, went to Stanford, finished in three years. I hate people like this. <laughs> went to Harvard, combination MD-PhD program, finished that in three years. Johnny works at UCLA. Johnny leads a lab at UCLA, 900 scientists. He's the world's leading expert on Crohn's disease. He will win the Nobel Prize in medicine because he has just discovered the genetic markers for Crohn's disease and for inflammatory bowel disease, and he will soon cure that disease. It will be cured in your lifetime. It'll be cured in this decade. My, my son, Rafi, took two years of internship and worked in, in, in his lab and actually has his name on a scientific paper. But what does it mean to be Johnny? One night I was at UCLA Hospital visiting a member of my shul. It was 10 o'clock at night and I was coming out of the hospital. Johnny was going into work. I said, what the hell are you doing? Go home, go to your family. He says, no, I got something I gotta work on. It's so exciting, it's so cool. Up until 10 o'clock at night, he's going to work. He works 29 hours a day. I said to him, what, what are you doing? He said, there is a protein in the human body that turns on and off the immune system. I have to find it. Me and 11 other guys around the country are searching for it. The problem is there's 100 million proteins in the human body. You've got to go through every one of them. But the one of us who finds it is going to cure AIDS and cancer. We know it's there. We just don't know which one and how it behaves. I have to find it. So his area is lower bowel diseases. Johnny found the piece of the world that's broken. So I say to the kid, you will find yours. You may not end up as a professor of medicine at UCLA. You may not end up as an ex-con saving criminals. Whatever part of the world is yours, you will find it. And when you do, you throw yourself at it with all your might. And then you're going to understand what we're teaching you. Then you're going to understand what we're teaching you. Because let me tell you what we're teaching you. Any school could get you into Yale. You're in a Jewish school. Let me tell you why. You study Torah so that you'll understand that you're not the first, that you're part of a long history of people who have taken up this task of making the world whole. And their wisdom, their encouragement, their strength is, is, is written into the stories of the Torah. That's why you learn Torah. And you do mitzvot. We taught you to do mitzvot because not only is the world broken, you're broken. And if you're going to make yourself whole, so that you don't break the world worse, you have to learn a discipline to do that. And that's what mitzvot are. It's a discipline to learn how to make yourself whole so you can make the world whole. And we taught you prayer. Isn't it interesting that no Jewish prayer says, dear God, fix the world for me, umayn. You never pray that. Why do you pray? Because when you meet the world in all of its brokenness, when you meet the world in all of its evil, when you meet the world in all of its darkness, it is going to break your heart. You are not going to believe how deep and broken this world is. And you're going to want to give up. But you can't. Instead, you come here to the synagogue. And you wrap yourself in a talus and you say this prayer. Give me the strength to go back out there. Give me the wisdom to do it right. Give me the courage to not give up. Give me the vision that it can work. Give me 
some of your spirit so I can go out there and finish the job you sent me to do. And I said to the kid, if you pray that prayer, God will always answer that prayer. So then the kid raised, I have another question. What's your question? He said, um, when I get out there, how am I going to know what to do? And I said, that's why you got to finish the fourth grade. <laughs> <laughs> what do you think we're teaching you here? I'm not just teaching you how to get you into medical school. I'm teaching you how to be a human being. That's what you're here to do. And if you do it, that's the life you get to lead. As we said last night, the product of a Jewish life is <laughs> not a slender athletic body. <laughs> if you live a Jewish life, you're not going to get rich. You're not going to get popular. You're not going to get powerful. You're not going to get rich. You're not going to get important. You're going to have one thing. If you live a Jewish life, and if you live it well, you live a life of significance. You live a life of heroism. You live a life that matters. In the 92nd Psalm, there's a beautiful meditation on what it means to get old. The 92nd Psalm is the Psalm for Shabbat. It's the last Psalm in Kabbalat Shabbat. In the last Psalm, it says very simply, it says, Tzadika Tamar Yifrach. A tzadik, a person who really gives himself to the world, flowers like a palm tree. It stands straight and strong like a cedar in Lebanon. Right? Rooted in God, rooted in the eternal task of making the world whole, this soul is always fruitful and always alive and always filled with life and possibility. And says, Yashar Adonai, God has been good to me. The greatest gift of a Jewish life, if it's lived really well, is that on your last day in the world, you gather your great-grandchildren around your bedside, and they say, Zayda, was it worth it? And you say, every single minute of it, it was worth it. And you close your eyes. To have that sense of integrity, that my life was important, that my life mattered, that I made a difference, that I touched the world, that I'm significant, that's what Jewish life gives you. That's the payoff. That's the reward for having lived a Jewish life. And that, my dear young friend, that's the meaning of life. Have a good morning. <laughs> Can I get a glass of water? Is that okay? Yeah. yeah. We have, I don't know how much time you got. I got nowhere else to go today. It's Martin Luther King birthday and there's traffic, so. Yeah. Jack Lima, Baba Lima, wrote a book, Ethical Yeah. Right. Yeah. It's very hard because we never talk this way. That's why I suggest that you sit down and write it as a letter. Thank you so much. I think writing it as a letter to your, to your family. No, you just have to sit down and have 20 minutes quiet to write. You don't, I, it doesn't have to be anything. And don't, don't be too profound. Start with something simple. I'm serious. Start with something simple. I gave a talk to the kids in my shul who were going off to college. I said to them, learn from the Torah. In the beginning, God created light. And God separated the light from the darkness. When you do your laundry, separate the lights from the darks. Otherwise, you'll spend your entire freshman year with pink underwear. You know how many kids have written back and say, that's the best thing anyone said to me.
you know, I, I was there in the laundry room, Rabbi, and I was about to say, oh, what the hell, throw it all into one, and remembered what you said. And damn, you were right. Every other boy on my floor has pink underwear. <laughs> Start with the simple lessons of life. I'm telling you, Dahlia. It's right. It's right. So what the hell? Throw it all in on hot. See what happens. You're a college student. You know everything. You won't listen to the wisdom of your ancestors. Why read the box? Just do what you want. Yeah. Yeah, but it's not just for that. I mean, it's also no, because you'll live your life differently if you have some sense of why I'm here. You'll also discover that you're much wiser than you think you are, right? You know a lot more about life. You don't know how much you know about life until you sit down and really write it out. Rob? Well, I was just going to say, I, I think it's down to me with the ethical will, which I started about a year and a half ago. Um, and I just think it's a work in progress. Yeah. Yeah, I, I think the week between Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur, every Jew should sit down and rewrite their letter. That, to me, is what Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur is about. Who shall live and who shall die? What are you doing? For what are you living and dying? And for what are you celebrating? And, and what's new in your life? And I, So that week is a good week to do that. But, you know, it's far away from now. We can do it now. But I think it's something that every human being needs to do. Yeah, please. Is it one letter? Like copies? I don't know. Leslie, it's a, it's, a, it's a question of whether you want upper division credit. You really want an A, you'll... Uh... First of all, I would say to you, honestly, you know, if you have children like mine, keep it short. Because your children grow up in the age of MTV. They don't know how to read anything longer than a paragraph, you know? A DVD on Xbox, yeah. No, I don't know. You know, what do you think? I... I it's, it's a question of how you want to express yourself. I wouldn't be too worried about the form of it. I would just try to get down on paper what I know, what life has taught me. What's the Torah of my life, the truth of my life? Yes, please. I have a practice in, in, along those lines. In, in my rabbinic practice, I use letter writing as a way to get people to slow down and think about what they're doing. So typically what I do is at every life crisis event, every life cycle event, I force people to write letters. When a couple gets married, I make them write letters to each other. Okay? And, 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 and really, I, I tell them, don't show your partner the letter, but write in a letter, why her? <laughs> why him? 
Okay, and then I use those letters when I prepare the wedding. I don't read them, I just use them. And then afterwards, I send them back to the couple and tell them to find some despicably romantic way to share it. When families have new babies, I tell them, write your kid a letter. Dear Junior, here's what Mommy and Daddy have discovered life is all about. Here's why we chose the names for you. Here are the people you're named for. Here's what's important in their lives that we want carried on in your life. I make parents of bar and bat mitzvah kids write their kid a letter. Here's what being a grown-up is about. Here's the challenges and here's the privileges of being a grown-up. And I ask them to spend a special time sharing that. And then I also have this letter-writing thing at funerals. I, I ask people at funerals to write the deceased a letter. And sometimes we read that as a eulogy. Um, so this letter-writing, I think, is a beautiful way of capturing this moment in life and sharing it. So if you have a family custom, and I know families that write a letter to the kid every year, things like this, I think it's a wonderful thing to do. I think because, number it's, it's a lost art in our culture because it takes time. It takes time to reflect, it takes time to think, it takes time to phrase it properly, but it's a wonderful way to meditate on a truth. You have to stop and really think clearly about what it is you want to say. And that's, I think it's a lovely idea. I think it's a very nice idea. Yes, please. Right. No question is stupid. Okay, that's one thing. And then, uh, oh, I forgot the second. Meanwhile, <laughs> we need a new senior rabbi. Would you consider moving to Orange County? <laughs> <laughs> I doubt, probably not. <laughs> the tsuris I know is the tsuris I live with, you know. And I knew, I'm, not, I'm too old for new tsuris, you know. So, um, so. No, there are no stupid questions. So, I mean, I think it's important. So, so and I, think, I think what you said is very important because I think the problem is that we're intimidated. I, look, I grew up with a wonderful rabbi. He was a very wise and giving man. I would have never gone to him with a personal question because he lived in the realm of God. So when I became a rabbi, I decided very purposely not to. I did very purposely to live in the world of people and to make myself available to people in a much more human way because I think that's, a diff that's what this generation needed from its rabbis. And this notion of asking questions, and I've taught generations of kids to ask questions now, because I think it's terribly important to ask questions, and terribly important to know that you can expect from your rabbi a decent answer, or at least a conversation. And I, to me, that's very, that's very special. And what's happened is, over the years, is that I've taught enough kids this that I get lots of emails now from kids in college and in their adulthood asking me all kinds of personal and you know, and theological questions and philosophical questions, but a lot of personal kinds of issues of, of, their, of guiding their lives, and that I think is very important. You, want to, you, you figure out what you want to say? You know, I'm not a rabbi, I'm not, it wasn't based on, uh, you know, rabbinics, 
but you have an amazing effect on people. Or just to smile at someone, sometimes that's just what they needed that day. And again, I think it's important with children and adults and everybody, we're not all going to be doing some magnificent individual thing like saving people who are on drugs or whatever. Uh, we'll just be doing little things all along the way. Right, absolutely. Yeah. The, the, the philosophy of mitzvot, of doing mitzvah, is that it's, it's the little acts that add up and that the world is structured in such a way that little acts have big significance. And you can't always measure the impact of a small act. So, but you have to be conscientious about this and not simply let it go. It doesn't come naturally. You know, if naturally, we tend to, you know, there's a law of entropy, which you know, we end up staying still. You have to get up and go do something and, and involve yourself and, 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 and be part of something. I mean, you know, we could go a little farther with this. I, I would argue that a meaningful life has three elements. One, which is this narrative of tikkun, of making a difference in the world. Two is the texture of relationships that we build in the course of a lifetime, right? I, I really believe that Martin Buber was right when he said all real life is encounter, is meeting. I find other people and the relationships that I build with other people, the, the way I share life with them and the, 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 the depth of those relationships and the breadth of my relationships is another source of a meaningful life. And the third are simple moments, simple moments of beauty and inspiration and truth and being able to stop and embrace those moments and hold them close. These are, I think, three elements to a meaningful life. And once again, I'm, I'm, gonna, I'm, gonna, I'm not, I'm not anti-American, but these are three things that American life mitigates against. So I said, number one, American life doesn't have a sense of what it's for. It doesn't encourage us to, um, to do tikkun. Second of all, American life is, 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 is ferociously individualistic. We, we're taught that we are born individuals and we live as individuals and that anyone who makes a claim on the self in some way diminishes the freedom of the individual. And so we are very reticent in American life to open ourselves to circles of relationship and circles of community. What we tend to do is embrace the world through the persona of a consumer. As a consumer, I control the transaction with any other human being. I'm buying and selling, and I can control it. I mean, if you want to see a really silly example of this, you know, newspapers used to have things called personal ads, right? Or you can go on JDate and look at this now. And it's so amazing the way that the personal ads sound just like the car sales ads, right? I'm looking for a late model, low maintenance, <laughs> You know, with low mileage, good-looking headlights, and a nice trunk, you know? You know, I, I counsel, and I, I'm kidding, but I, I counsel young men all the time who come to see me and they say, I can't find a partner. I can't find love. And I say, well, tell me what you're doing. You know, I go there, I have, and, and you what you realize is the young man has a checklist. And he dates a woman, and he has a checklist, and he holds a checklist up against the girl. Okay, and she's pretty, and she's thin, and she's traditional, and she's ah, oh, but she's not, you know. And and he's measuring, he's shopping, he's Best Buy, he's shopping, you know. And 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 it's it, he he isn't ready to enter into an intimacy until he gets what he wants because he inter interprets intimacy.
I hope they're ours. <laughs> he interprets intimacy as a claim on himself that's going to delimit his options. You know, Rabbi, what if I fall in love with Mary Her and then discover the love of my life? You know, what are you, what? <laughs> you know, he's afraid to commit himself because that means he can't date the next one who shows up on his doorstep, right? And this is a problem. You know, Hugh Hefner, who's a great philosopher, by the way, once had a very interesting observation about men. He said, the reason I'm rich is very simple. No matter how beautiful, luscious, gorgeous, incredible Miss January is, they'll always buy the magazine to see Miss February. And a lot of men in the community have been taught that that's the way you engage in relationships. You don't become intimate because that will preclude the next encounter, you see? So what I'm suggesting is American culture doesn't teach us how to bond with each other. So it mitigates against a sense of meaning, it mitigates against a sense of friendship and community and intimacy. And because it's such a rush-rush culture, it mitigates against moments of significance. It doesn't allow us to slow down and say, oh wow, what a beautiful place this is. What a lovely moment this is. We have fast food. I mean, what a travesty. <laughs> fast food. I mean, what? sit, eat like a mensch, make a bracha, you know, have a meal, you know, talk a little bit. Nope, gotta get that Big Mac in my mouth and get out there. You know, Jewish life won't let you do that. You can't live Jewish life quickly. You gotta like slow down, like say the bracha, you know? Slow down, enjoy what's going on. And so I'm going to suggest that, and it's not because there's something wrong with America. I love America. It's given us more, as Jews, it's given us more than any culture has ever. But it has these gaps that are deadly if you're looking for a life of meaning. Okay? Yeah, Heather? Oh, yeah, all the time. I love them. Yeah. How, if I'm ever stumped, I say to the kid, I don't know. I don't know. And, and by the way, if you want to see something really cool, <laughs> tell a group of 10-year-olds, I don't know. <laughs> but you are the rabbi. <laughs> yeah, but I don't know everything either. You know, Let's go to the library and find out. Let's go find out. Sometimes kids ask a question. I'll say, you know what? Go back to class, turn on the computer, go on the internet, find the answer for me, okay? Where can we go to find out is a much better answer than just giving a kid an answer. Because then you're teaching the kid to be a learner as well. And when, when I say to a kid, I don't know, but I'll have to go look, and we'll go look together, what I'm saying to him is, knowledge is a process of growing, and I'm not finished growing. I'm a grown-up, but I'm not grown up. I'm still growing. I'm still learning. Oh, yeah, I love when I get stumped. I love when the kid tells me I'm wrong. That's even better. You know, that's your answer? Blah! You know? <laughs> Who are you? Right? That's a great answer. That's a, that's a, or I'll bring another rabbi, and he has a you know, different answer. So that kind of a thing. That's a, that's a joy for people to understand that there's different spiritual answers to the great questions of life. So I love those kind of questions. Yeah, please. Well, yesterday we were like two urgent needs of reviewing. We started with cocoon and then relationships. What was the third one? Moments of sanctity. Moments of... I, I say three, there's, three, there's three sources of meaning in a life. One is, is, is a, a narrative that gives your life meaning, and I suggested the narrative of tikkun olam, to say that the significance of my life is what I do to make the world whole, or as Abraham said last night, to be a blessing. Number two is to have a circle of friends, a circle of relationships, okay? 
And number three are to embrace moments of sacredness that happen to us all the time. Moments of miracle, moments of wonder. Yeah. People who want to be rabbis, are they different today than they were 20 years ago? Yes. And in what way? They're female. <laughs> <laughs> no. Um, yeah, they're, they're very different. 40 years ago, most of the people who came to rabbinical school came from very rich Jewish backgrounds and saw this as the natural extension of their Jewish lives. Um, now, we get a lot of people in rabbinical school who have only discovered Jewish life as adults. And, and so they come with different perspectives, with different uh, questions, with different understandings. They don't come with a sort of built-in. And I grew up in a very, very Jewish home. You know, someone asked me before, you speak Yiddish? I said, I speak a lot of Yiddish words and a lot of curses, because um, that's the world I grew up in. But I don't really speak Yiddish, I speak Hebrew. But I, I grew up in that environment, a very rich Jewish environment, but I'm teaching young people who didn't grow up in that, who got it in summer camp or got it you know, in college, and they have a very different perspective on Jewish life. That's one of the things. That's one of the, one of the differences, okay? Um, and then you know, young people today have a different perspective on the world than you and I do. Right? They have very different experiences. I'll give you just a couple of tiny examples. These are suggestive of much longer lectures, right? I grew up in a time when the state of Israel was a miracle, and it was dreadfully vulnerable. I remember the Six-Day War. You know, I was a teenager during the Six-Day War. I was, a, I was in Israel on the Yom Kippur War. I was in Jerusalem on that Yom Kippur. The, the sense that Israel, as a power in the world, still eludes me. I still think of it as a very fragile, tentative um, entity that needs to be protected carefully. But my, you know, my kids grew up after the Lebanon War. They've only known an Israel of power and strength. They don't know an Israel of, you know, my Israeli is on a tractor with a, with Kova Tembel and a rifle, you know. My son's Israeli is, is you know, Arik Sharon, you know, is a big, strong, heavy general who's blasting his way through Lebanon. It, it's a very different Israel. We have a different sense of what Israel is. That's number one. Number two, I have a very different sense of America than my kids do because my grandparents were immigrants. So I have an immigrant sense of what America looks like. Um, I feel very comfortable in America. I mean, I eat enchiladas, listen to the Grateful Dead, and up until last night, rooted for the Green Bay Packers. Uh, <laughs> um, my, um, my kids have a very different sense of America. They, they don't have a sense, they don't understand the way I do in a very deep way what an utter surprise and miracle it is that we don't deal with anti-Semitism. They just don't get it. They, 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 you, you know, they just don't understand anti-Semitism. You know, and when they meet it, they're absolutely outraged. You know, like, what? Do you realize what? I said, yeah, but that's what like, we grew up with that. What are you talking about? You know? And it's, it's a whole different world. And, and I keep trying to tell them, you have no idea what a gift America is to the Jewish people. That's another little piece of it, right? And there are other pieces of it that, that have to do with our historical experience that we just don't, uh, you know, that, that their historical experience and my experience is different. But I find, just to finish the, your comment, um, I find that the people, I teach rabbinical school. I, I teach the, the, the fifth years, the, the seniors. They're about to graduate. I'm the ogre at the door. You can't become a rabbi until you impress me. 
right? Remember the John Wayne movies? John Wayne is the drill instructor, right? You're gonna fear me more than the Japanese, you know? <laughs> so that's what I say to them. I say to them, you know, you know, you're gonna hate me, but it's better me than the board of directors of your synagogue, you know? You know, because when I kick your butt, it'll be all right. You'll get a C plus. But when they do, they'll fire you. No, so I have, you know, I'm the ogre at the, but I teach these kids and I find them remarkably gifted, creative, bright, deeply committed, deeply interesting, deeply creative. It's a wonderful crop. It's a wonderful crop, as it were, of young people who want to devote themselves to Jewish people. And I'm always very pleased. It's a real honor to be able to teach them even if I do have to kick them around a little bit. So thank you with for that, everything. Thank you very much.